With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When the ice breaks, when the heart shake in the town and the moxie in the winter, the end of my love for now and you've spent your summer. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and we're coming to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the hockey news from 50 years ago. And this week, we're looking at July 27th to August 2nd, 1970. This is a bit of a special episode for us this week. It's number 40 in our series. I didn't think we'd make 10 when we started out, but here we are, 40th 40th show, and uh, it has some pretty interesting stuff this week. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support's been crucial to our research. We've been able to access all the hockey and sporting news from 50 years ago to bring you all the tidbits that we've found. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beers and some amazing pub food. Some of these craft beers are actually crafted from recipes from the original breweries in Port Colborne in the late 1800s. Once we're all able to get together and socialize again, I'd love to meet up with some of our listeners at the Breakwall in Port Colborne for a beer and a burger. Last week, uh, we told you about uh, some interesting things going on with the Oakland Seals, as they always seem to be in 1970. Jerry Seltzer, one of the two who... uh, people who were bidding for the seals at that time talked about how he knew the deck was completely stacked against him when he made his presentation to the nhl board of governors uh vancouver columnist jim kearney told us about a new technology that might have made gold judges absolutely redundant in 1970 and we had a bit of player news from the week including some bad news for the buffalo sabers whose number one goalie roger crozier suffered another attack of pancreatitis and ended up in a detroit hospital but roger assured everyone he was going to be just fine for training camp as was so much the case in 1970, the summer of 1970 and all during that time period, there wasn't a terribly uh, great amount of hockey news available, but we do have some stories to talk about this week. We learn about the future of National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell, at least as how he described it, to hockey writer Stan Fischler. Uh, We learned about Johnny Bauer and George Armstrong heading up to the Northwest Territories to instruct at a hockey school up there. And the NHL released its 1970-71 schedule and all the teams were busy announcing home dates. We'll also hear more from hockey lifer 
and great friend of mine, Ed Chadwick. Lots to talk about this week, so we'll get to it right away. First up this time around, well, Stan Fischler spoke to National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell this week about his future in the game. Campbell, at the time 65 years old, had been the boss of the NHL for 24 years, and he told Fischler he's got no plans for retirement at this point in time. Now, this was a change from his position just five years ago when he had told people he was thinking of staying on just a couple of more years at that point at that point at most a couple of more years now you must remember Clarence Campbell was the president of the National Hockey League but basically just a clerk for the NHL Board of Governors whatever the board decided Clarence followed religiously and he often admitted that he said he was just a guy who worked for the Board of Governors now In 1965, Campbell was experiencing some health issues, and that had him hospitalized and considering retirement. Well, he found out that all he had to do was take better care of himself at the time, and that seemed to have given him the impetus to remain in this rather stressful occupation for quite a bit longer. Once Clarence got the idea that he was just a lackey for the owners, it was a lot easier on his health. Campbell told Fischler that he has stayed on as president because of the expansion of the National Hockey League. Uh, He said the entire idea of expanding the league, uh, at first he was quite uh, opposed to it, but as he was convinced by the big bucks that were available, he said he stayed on because uh, he wanted to be around to see the NHL reach all of its expansion goals, whatever their goal might be. They were never really outlined in detail. Uh, We're not sure what those goals are because he really wasn't saying he did say recently in another interview that uh, the league could add four teams in Seattle Atlanta Dallas and Kansas City but in any event that wouldn't happen before the 1973-74 season he did have this to say about further expansion Clarence said no matter what happens there won't be any before 1973-74 Campbell said that the league would like to intensify the representation in the central area of the United States, and they need another team out on the West Coast, which is why he's suggesting Seattle. It can only be just a a few short years before Seattle gets into the NHL, couldn't it? If it proves suitable, Campbell said, we could extend further south and in the east. But Campbell said, we don't need any more eastern teams so that new arena in long island not a that's a no-go for the nhl in 1970 and not before sometime after 1974 right fischler's story seemed to focus on uh, canadian content in the league and how that there was less and less representation of canadian teams well he was writing this as a special to the star missive that he always does he seems uh, to take great joy in the fact that the Americanization of the NHL seems to be more and more prevalent every year. Stan quotes Campbell on uh, more Canadian representation in the league uh, when he says even Campbell allows there's no chance that Winnipeg, Quebec, or any other city north of the border will gain entrance 
to the National Hockey League. Campbell said, I can't see any Canadian cities entering. He concluded, because demographically or economically, it's just not possible. We all know here in 2020 that that tune would soon change. Here's one of the uh, more interesting things that I I came across uh, this week, and and it relates to some things going on right now in 2020. Uh, We've seen recently the movement for professional sports teams to change their names. Personally, I'm all for these changes. Sports should be for everyone, and teams that represent entire cities or regions should endeavor to be inclusive of the entire population. If a name or a logo is disrespectful to any segment of the population, then that team should endeavor to rectify the situation, unless, of course, the old white men that own the teams just don't care about anyone other than those who look and think just like them. That's their prerogative, but they should suffer the consequences for their archaic and racist beliefs. Of course, this is this is nothing new. It also happened back in the late 60s, early 70s. We just... Uh, I guess choose to forget about that. Back in the 1969-70 season, the season just passed that we looked at, the uh, city of Salt Lake joined the Western Hockey League, and they decided to uh, name the team. The team, as everyone knows through history, is the Salt Lake Golden Eagles, but that name wasn't the original moniker for that Western Hockey League franchise. Initial plans for when the team was established was to call the team the Salt Lake Saints. It kind of had a nice ring to it, don't you think? Well, although it did sound pretty good, there was opposition to that name from a significant segment of the population in Salt Lake City, Utah. That would be the Mormon Church. For some reason, the Mormons did not like using the word saints as part of an identifier for a professional hockey club. And they threatened as a group to boycott Western Hockey League games unless that nickname was changed. The team owners acquiesced to the pressure and that is how the Salt Lake Golden Eagles got their name. Out in Vancouver this week, a lot of people are wondering why the Vancouver Canucks, the NHL's new uh, expansion club on the west coast of Canada, hasn't arranged any of their broadcasting rights for the upcoming season. General Manager Bud Poyle said this week that the team was close to finalizing their broadcasting plans for the 1970-71 season, and they were hoping to announce something within the next week or two. Poyle said that the Canucks would be involved in at least six national CBC Saturday Hockey Night in Canada telecasts in the upcoming season, with three of the games being played in Vancouver, and they would start at 5 p.m. to accommodate Eastern television markets. Of course, that's going to make people of Vancouver upset that they have to more or less be uh, the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail as they uh, accommodate all the folks back east who actually put up the money, more or less, to make sure that Vancouver would have a team in the NHL. 
Poyle also said there's been no decision as to whether local television outlets, local stations, would be blacked out for these games. That's incredible if they tried to black those games out. That would upset the locals even more than the change in time, I would think. Bud Poyle also said that at least 65 of the Canucks' 78 games this season will definitely be broadcast on radio, and he's hoping that all of the games might actually make it to the airwaves. Poyle figures that no matter which station gains the broadcast rights, Vancouver broadcasting legend Jim Robson would be the play-by-play man, and in Vancouver, really, there's no other choice. Here's a story that was making the rounds in 1970. I must confess, I really didn't have a lot of interest in it, being at that time 19 years old and not really much of a taxpayer. But at the time, the Canadian government was looking at changes to its tax code to accommodate professional athletes and owners of sports teams. Who do you think was behind this? Well, Alan Eagleson was citing the case of Bobby Orr. He said that in 1969-70, Bobby spent about 15000 American dollars, that's what he's paid in, of his own money responding to autograph requests he receives by mail. Bobby apparently attempts to answer each letter he receives, and that was about 15000 in the last year, with an autographed picture. Eagleson says that under 1970 Canadian tax laws, Bobby is not allowed to deduct any of these expenses from his income. Now, Eagleson also kind of conveys a veiled threat to the government when he says that Canadian hockey players earn as much as a total of $3 million each year. That's total, not just one player in 1970, of course. And because they can't write off these expenses in Canada, all of these players would consider moving their permanent residences to the United States, where, of course, the tax laws are much less restrictive. So Eagleson's hoping to gain some leverage there for his clients. And, you know, probably for the owners of the teams as well. Allen might have started colluding with the owners way back then. Here's one of the nice stories we're enjoying reporting these days. Uh, In the summer of 1970, the Northwest Territories, uh, sportsmen up there, decided that it would be good to get kids more into hockey. Actually, the kids were already into hockey. They just didn't have a lot of great coaching, a lot of great instruction. So the first time ever in 1970, that district, the Northwest Territories, held their first hockey school in the city of Yellowknife. And two Toronto Maple Leaf legends were booked as instructors, and they found the experience to be something that they're all they would always treasure. Johnny Bauer, the Leafs' great goalkeeper, uh, 45 now, recently retired, and George Armstrong, the longtime captain of the Maple Leafs, they were in Yellowknife as instructors, and they spoke about their time with the youngsters from the north. Johnny, in particularly, was impressed with the kids from the hockey camp. Johnny said, there's some really good kids here. I'm really impressed. They're asking questions, they're skating, and they're shooting pretty hard. Johnny said 
that the kids at this Northwest Territories Hockey School actually had a better chance of getting something out of their instruction than the kids in Ontario who would attend Ontario hockey schools. And that's because there's about 500 kids at a time at some of these schools, and there's more opportunity to learn and get more ice time in the hockey school in the Northwest Territory. You know, more uh, personal instruction, closer access to the uh, famous hockey players who would be giving the lessons. George Armstrong really enjoyed his time with the boys up there, and he endeared himself to everybody present when the first time he got up in front of them, he said that he didn't want the boys to call him Mr. Armstrong or call even call him George. He just said, just call me Chief, which is the nickname by which he was known to his teammates with the Maple Leafs throughout his career. The school was broken down into two one-week sessions and is combined with a clinic for coaches in the Northwest Territory. And this is something badly needed. A lot of, lot of men up in Northwest Territories wanted to get involved with hockey, but they hadn't had much instruction throughout their early years. And so the coaching clinics really improved the instruction that the kids would get throughout the hockey season. About 150 boys would attend the two uh, sessions and they were coming from Inuvik, Yellowknife, Pine Point, Hay River, Fort Smith, and Fort Simpson, and most of the boys were under 17 years old. A day at the camp for each boy consisted of two hours of skating and two hours of lectures, and these were all taken in shifts to accommodate everyone and uh, reduce the numbers on the ice at any given time. Other outdoor activities were also worked into the program. The school is funded in part by Hockey Canada and is a direct result of the into the study of amateur sport that the federal government conducted over the past couple years. Each boy who attended the camp only had to pay $20 for the entire week and that included room and board with billets in the uh, city of Yellowknife. A great program that really helped hockey develop in Canada's far north. The new Buffalo Sabres still haven't settled any top farm club yet, but a rumor making the rounds in several newspapers this week claimed that the Sabres would establish an American Hockey League team in a city in the southern U.S. Now, how far south would the Sabres go to establish an AHL team? As far south as, say, Atlanta? Well, actually, there was no hint of any hockey team in Atlanta at this point in time. Richmond, Virginia seemed to be the early favorite to get a Sabres franchise at this point in their history. The National Hockey League uh, released parts of its schedule this week. Still not the whole thing, but a lot of teams began announcing their uh, home openers and one... Uh, Highlight of all these home openers was the announcement by the Buffalo Sabres that their first National Hockey League game would be played in Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. Yes, playing in the odd, even though it would not have its roof raised at this point and would only seat just under 10,000 fans, the uh, Sabres would open their National Hockey League existence against none other than the Montreal Canadiens.
Here are a few other news and notes from around the hockey world in this week of 1970. Pittsburgh Penguins young forward Rick Kessel suffered a broken ankle while water skiing on Lake Ontario near his home in Oshawa. Uh, Coach Red Kelly wasn't pleased and he had this to say. The accident may have cost him a real opportunity to become a regular center with the Penguins. It could cost him a chance to have a career in the National Hockey League. The Penguins, by the way, will open their training camp on September 13th, once again in the Ontario town of Brantford. The Los Angeles Kings announced the signing of three players this week. Uh, Butch Goring, Bill Cowboy Flett, Jills Murat, and Matt Ravlich have all inked their 1969-70 contracts with the Kings. Ravlich and uh, Flett were thought to be problems uh, getting signed for general manager uh, Larry Regan, but he made sure he made them happy and uh, they'll be with the team this year. The big signing, though, is young Goring. The Kings feel he's a star in the making, and he seems to be uh, being considered as a centerpiece for the Kings for many years to come. People are wondering what young Dale Talon uh, will be doing with the Canucks this year. Talon, as you remember, was the Canucks' first draft pick in their history in the amateur draft in June, and he was taken with the second overall pick from the Toronto Marlboros. Talon is a uh, very uh, gifted young hockey player, and he's able to play many, many positions, and, and a lot of people are wondering just what his role is going to be with the Canucks this year. Well, general manager Bud Poyle says that Dale will line up at center, probably on the Canucks' second line this season. Not everybody agrees with the GM, though. Head scout Peanuts O'Flaherty claims that left wing is Dale's best position, and that's probably where he would be best suited to play. But the guy who may really have some input into this is Dale himself. And his agent, Alan Eagleson, who of course is a mouthpiece for many of these young players, he says that Talon wants to play defense in the NHL. What we can tell you is this about the only place you might not see Dale is in goal between the pipes for the Canucks. But with an expansion team in, in these days of diluted talents, <laughs> you really, you might never know what's going to happen. Another tidbit from the Canucks, by the way, they sold veteran defenseman Kent Douglas to the Baltimore Clippers of the American Hockey League. Philadelphia Flyers right winger Gary Dornhofer reports that he's recovering from what he terms minor knee surgery and he's going to be 100% ready for training cap in September. Uh, Dorney, uh, great big right winger, truculent in nature, takes no guff from anyone, said that he had a bit of uh, cartilage removed from a right knee and it was from behind the knee. It was not a very intrusive procedure and he figures that he's going to be back on skates uh, well before training camp and he'll be ready to go once the NHL season kicks off in October. And this week we have a little more from our conversation with uh, former NHL goalie, goalie coach, scout Eddie Chadwick uh, when we sat down at his home in Fort Erie, Ontario. Last week we spoke about uh, the very early days on how Ed 
got involved in hockey. And this was pretty interesting. It, it gave us some really insight into uh, how Canadian boys got involved in the sport way back in the uh, late 30s, or early 40s, and how he became a uh, Toronto Maple Leaf property and very interesting process. Uh, we'll carry on with Ed's career as he turned professional and eventually made it to the National Hockey League. One of the things I talked to Ed about was how he actually got signed to that C form and how the scouting system worked in uh, the hockey world in the uh, 1940s when Ed uh, first became property of the Maple Leafs. Here's what he had to say. Even the scouting uh, back then, there's guys all over the place for it seems, mm-hmm. you know, because because of the C form. Because I know when I was uh, was going getting ahead of myself, and when I was scouting, for uh, I could I had to try the opportunity to change. They like have so many guys, uh, five five guys on the C uh, on the thing. If you see the player, you could take a guy off and put a guy on, mm-hmm. like you know. So we get back to to it all. No, I didn't know too much about it. I don't know. I heard that there was Chicago happening, so that's the reason why they signed me to Seaport. And they signed you, and it was a big hurry then. It all happened. Well, at that, at that time, I, I didn't understand, but uh, it was a hurry because they didn't want to lose me. And you were playing for who when that happened? I was, uh, at that time, I think I was playing probably Junior B, maybe Junior, maybe Midget. Oh, okay. Know. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but anyways, that's a few years ago. <laughs> but, but that's basically what all happened. Like, you know, then I just worked myself from there. And I, the lucky break for me was to go with some Ikes because I don't think I would have played as much at the Marlies because they had so three or four goalkeepers there. And this way, I played most a lot of games in some Ikes, so I played for three years. So basically, if I was with the Marlies, I might only played a year or whatever. That was the biggest break there. And then the break from from some bikes to that one, uh, I went to a couple of training camp, first training camp with Leafs in St. Catharines as a kid. And, and it was strange as heck, like, you know, you're looking around all these big athletes and you know, you've got 17, 18-year-old little kid looking and say, hmm, you know. But then after that, when I finished my junior, of course, here, I spent the whole year in Toronto as a uh, practice goalkeeper with the Leafs. And I learned a lot then. Uh, Harry Lumley was there at the time, and my equipment was nothing. And Harry, I asked Harry if he could use one of his gloves one day because mine was like a <laughs> piece of rag sort of thing. And he let me do that, and I, I said, boy, no wonder you can catch the puck when you can, and I can't, and I can't. So it's, then I would we go. Then that year was when I was back with the practice go with the Leafs. I used to have to go to the games at night and watch the Leafs play at home on Saturday nights or whenever it was, because I sit upstairs in the, in the alumni box with uh, the little box of Mr. Smith's box and and watch the games. And if he needed to think I was the kind of a runner, runner down through the coach and stuff and come. But I just can't. I, the one day I was sent down to Joe Primo, I just couldn't say over the air what, it is, what, they, what Joe, Joe said to Joe me. Joe was the lead coach then. Yeah. And I, and I can't say what Joe told me to tell Mr. Smythe. <laughs> but it was, it was funny. But it, it was a whole year. Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you how much I made. I don't know. 
And then, of course, uh, next year I was sent to the Sault Ste. Marie uh, for uh, the coach there with my coach at the Junior B. He won, he took, he asked for me to go up there, so I went up there and played, and we won the Northern Tired League, and then we, I think we played in Kitchener, and uh, we got knocked off in three or four games in the Kitchener. But, uh, and then the next year, I went to training camp and ended up going to, uh, to uh, Winnipeg. Alfie Pike was coaching Winnipeg. Alfie, Alfie Pike was the coach in Winnipeg. And the thing with Winnipeg, there was half of Montreal players and half of Belize players. Oh, I it see. Was, there was kind of a deal going on. And uh, the, my first, after training camp in Toronto, in, in Toronto, I went out there, and I think Brian Cullen was with me, and the three or four drove out, and of course I had a Jackie was at home and I had a baby at the time. Jackie and, was your wife? Yes. And uh, I got out there and then I found the place and then uh, Jackie and her dad came out and helped me look and got them. Then Jackie's mom flew out with the babe. That was uh, Abby Pat, uh, my daughter. And uh, we played in Winnipeg. Well, Winnipeg, we, had a, we started off not very good and I didn't start off very good. And I got a meeting one day, I called into uh, Alfie Pike's office. And Alfie says, what in the hell is going on with you? I said, well, he said, something's going on. You're just not playing well. We're not, the team's not playing well, and you've got to start playing well. So I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, let's start working on stuff. And he went through a lot of different drills. He started that next practice with me and that. And then all of a sudden, we started off dead last. And we were within four or five months, we were dead first. But we had guys like Mozinko join us. Bill Mosienko. Yeah, I could all. And, and uh, oh, I was just a pilot guy. Uh, Freddie Sherrill was a coach. Uh, uh, he defenseman. Was... Danny Summers was a defenseman. And uh, up front we had the Cullen boys and... Uh, Brian and Barry. Yeah, and, uh, he, uh, and the other guy was on the other wing. But, but if you go through my scrapbooks, you'll find a lot of that mm -hmm. stuff. I could all, who was all there. And the Montreal players, uh, Eddie Murray, Mazur, and uh, Dan, Danny Summers. There's a bunch of guys. And we just fell into a, a good thing. The first, I think it was the second game we were in, in Regina. And we got we got beat 3-1 three, one, three, one or something. And I got myself really upset because I, I, had, I caught the puck. And a shot, and the goalkeeper put the light on, and they, they said I had the goal, and I had the puck in my hand, my, my catching glove. And I started arguing with the referee, and he said, what are you saying? I said, what the hell, I got it here. He said, all the guy said was in. And I was so freaking mad after the game, I got myself in real trouble. We were loading up the, the, the truck to go pick up the train to go on the west, and I took Alfie Pike's bag and threw it on, and I guess I shouldn't have done that because I broke something inside that bag. <laughs> I got in a little trouble then too, but but from then on we just started climbing and we ended up winning the whole show. We won the we uh, the northern league, like the the western league. We won that, and then we we went against uh, Montreal Royals, I think they called them at that time from the Montreal for the finals for the I think it was the Edmund Murray Trophy, mm -hmm. and uh, we won it all in that. And then, uh, of course uh, that year, then I went from there to Toronto. You got called up to the Maple Leafs. And I did that year in 50, 56, I think it was. I was, a 50, I was out there, let's see, 55. 55, 56. 55, 56 out there. 
and I called up in February, and there's, and we're a bunch of guys. We were in Calgary at the time on the way home from a trip, and we fixed a few more guys. We just ran a car and go to the, out to the uh, Banff where the nice hot buns were, uh, little places lay in the water, nice warm, warm water. Get out the age and age, the pains and the things. And, oh, the hot springs. Yeah, so I came back to the hotel and there was a message from the city coach. So I went down to Alfie's room and he said, get in here. He said, you're ready here. I said, I said, don't take this. You shouldn't sit in the paper. I said, you son of a bitch, you trained me, did you? He said, no. He said, you're heading for Toronto. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Toronto's calling you up. And I said, well, when? So he said, well, you you leave tomorrow morning for the Winnipeg. There's a flight. There's a ticket for you at the at the airport for you, waiting for you. They'll meet you in Toronto. You take your equipment with you and everything else. But in the meantime, you're, if they're flying you into Winnipeg, holding you over two hours to be with your Jackie and the baby, they met me at the airport with clean clothes and that. And for a couple of hours, then I flew out there into Toronto. And that was on the Monday. And then they picked me up at the airport. Somebody was waiting for me. And that put me in the hotel downtown Toronto. Was that at the Royal York? No, it was on Jarvis Street, something. It wasn't the greatest Royal York in the world. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so I practiced that day on Tuesday. And then we had a skate on Wednesday. And we played played against Montreal. Well, you go back to the story. But I asked Alfie, I said, well, who am I playing against? He told me, don't worry about it. They're not a very good team. And I did get on the plane. And some guy left a newspaper there. And I looked at the newspaper yeah, with the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, thanks, Alpha. It was just, an old, just an ordinary team. <laughs> I could all, and so, anyways, we end up tied 1-1. We were losing one nothing. I think it was only 80 seconds, uh, 90 seconds after the start of the game when I think Babel let one go out of the corner to Jeffrey on standing in the middle and bingo was in the net before I could even see. one nothing. I thought at that time, well, what times of things were playing going back to Winnipeg? But... I just held it in from there, and then uh, Ronnie Hurst scored the winner at the tire in the third period to make 1-1. And I'm not quite sure after that. I don't know if we went to Chicago first or Boston the first after that for a Thursday night game. We won 1-1. Then we came back home and played against, the, I think it was the Rangers, and we, we beat the Rangers a shutout. Then we went to either Chicago, yes, you can pick it out of my book. Mm-hmm. Figure out who it is, and we tied one one, and they come. I think it'd be Boston and one nothing or something like that. So yeah. I ended up with uh, two two tied three tied games and two shutouts. Now that first game you played, who was the coach? At uh, in Toronto. In Toronto, uh, it might have been King King Clancy. King Clancy was Could doing that one season. Yeah, you don't remember if they had any special words for you in your first game or. No, the only thing I can remember after after that when I did come went to Toronto, uh, King Clancy sat down beside me one day, one day before the game, and I asked him, "Yes, yeah, so what's up, Mister Clancy?" And he says, uh, "I just want to explain you something about this gun number nine." I heard you talk about number nine, huh? Yeah, I said, "Gordy, yeah, yeah." I said, "Don't you twitch when he twitches because it'll be up your ass. It'll be in the net." <laughs> And they started laughing. I think he, I think he loosened me up. Sure, I could. Oh, that was that was your first game against the Red Wings. Yeah, did and Gordy the, score on you? I can't remember. <laughs> Probably. Who knows? 
But all he scored on back a lot so, of guys. So far, then from then on, of course, I uh, I played the whole the 50, 50, 50, 50, 60, 56, 57 here, 57, 58. I played uh, 70 games each year. And then, of course, Johnny come in that year, and we both played together. In 58, 59. 58, 59. Yeah. You were the last Leaf goalie to play every game in the season. I think that the record still holds 140 games. Straight. Yeah. So that was Ed Chadwick talking about his early days as a professional right up to the time he joined the Toronto Maple Leafs for his first NHL games. A very interesting insight into how hockey was run back in the 1950s. So that's our show this week, everyone. Slightly abbreviated, but we did have some news and some uh, fun with Eddie Chadwick. Uh, What did we learn from this episode? Well, we learned about a great program that brought hockey instruction to Canada's far northwest and the Northwest Territories. We found out that changing team names due to public pressure is nothing new. It was a thing 50 years ago. And we found out a little more about the hockey journey of Ed Chadwick. Next week, we'll have the following uh, stories for you. Bobby Orr would be in the news as he was doing a, a, a lot of interviews and as he toured the country. And we'll hear of so- Bobby's uh, views on some different subjects in the hockey world. Uh, we'll hear of a rookie player signing a contract that set a record, a new standard for first-year NHL players, and we'll tell you who he is. We will also learn the identity of the new coach of the LA Kings, which was a bit of a surprise because at that point, we didn't think the Kings were looking for a new coach with Johnny Wilson, having done a pretty good job with a very bad team in 1969-70. It was no surprise as who the new coach was, given if you know who the general manager would be picking. The 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Uh, the very popular Juno-nominated uh, Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, gives us our intro and exit music, and we thank them for letting us uh, use their tunes. Other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast uh, come from Andy Cole as well. Our research, as we told you, comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Global Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site. It's Hockey50YearsAgo.com where we provide updates to the Twitter account and, of course, the podcast. And we're now on YouTube with the podcast as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We enjoy bringing this to you, and we have a very exciting 1970-71 hockey season coming up where we'll outline those first-year adventures of the Buffalo Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks, as well as everything else that took place in the NHL at that time. On that note, everyone, we will see you next time. When the-